And please join with me in a word of prayer. And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we, we have come into this holy place, Lord, expecting to be in your presence. And as we are in your presence, Lord, we declare ourselves to be your people, your family, your children, and possessed, Lord, of the capabilities by which your spirit might inspire us. So help us to see ourselves as you see us, our fellowship as you have made it. And Lord, in the seeing, help us, Lord, to rise up to serve you even as you have desired and that, Lord, we might glorify your name and build your kingdom together as your people. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. In his wonderful little book entitled, Welcome to the Family, William Wells has written that it that becoming a Christian is a lot like getting married. You get a family in the bargain. The wedding may leave you with blurred memories of new faces, but gradually those faces become familiar, and you begin to develop a bond with some of the relatives that is as thick as blood itself. The evangelical family is like that, he writes. When you first commit your life to Christ, you may feel pretty much alone, but, but then you discover that you have become a member of a whole family of people who are also, likewise, committed to Jesus Christ. Now, over the last few weeks, I've invited you to join with me in a very careful, focused study on one verse, just one verse that is found in Ephesians chapter 2. And in that verse, we are given the privilege of seeing what God sees when he looks at his people, when he looks at his church when he looks at Ebenezer. In just a matter of, what, uh, now three weeks, you will be welcoming a new pastor and begin a fresh season of of life and ministry together. And as a way to prepare Ebenezer for that moment and for that season, I thought it would be a valuable exercise to, to, to clarify the vision and focus on what God sees in and of you that you might see it for yourself as well. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to return to that passage. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And there we arrive at the second of two portraits, illustrations of the church that are painted by the Apostle Paul. We looked at the first of those portraits last week, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with God's people. And as we move now to the second, I want you to keep in mind that these pictures are significant only because of the very first word of that verse. Anything that we are to discover in this verse of substance is only as a consequence of Jesus Christ and what he has made out of you and out of me and out of all of us together. So if you catch the momentum in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we come to that second portrait. Consequently, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow members with God's people, and drum roll, here's the second portrait, members of God's household. I just love this image of the church, especially as all of the dots are finally connected and it becomes the central portrait, the household of God. Actually, it's a little bit more intimate than the word may suggest. You might think of the word household and think of dishes and dishwashers and washing machines that have broken down and need to be replaced, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, Actually, it's a bit more intimate as that word may suggest. Household, in reality, another word could be used that gives it more of an accurate feel. It's the word family. 
the family of God. Consequently, because of Jesus Christ, we are members of the family of God. As I think of Ebenezer, that that, as much as any other term, could serve as the caption of your unique portrait. And so I suppose it shouldn't come as a surprise because of all the other images that are used in the New Testament describe the church that this is the one that seems to capture the unique DNA pattern of a congregation the best. It is the family of God. But just using that word requires some degree of explanation. Because the word family suffers a bit by the way it's defined in the word, in the world. It's a word that carries a sense of boundaries that are drawn by specific genetic codes and lineage and charts of genealogy. But here, the term family goes far beyond natural flesh and blood relationships. It is a family that is gathered together by the Spirit of God and is called into being by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We read in the New Testament that we find those terms being used to describe us. We, we read in the New Testament that it is Jesus who taught his disciples to pray by saying, our Father, and engaging them in a family, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And we find in John chapter 1, verse 12, that when we, each one of us as individuals, receive Christ as our Savior, uh, we become the children of God. It, 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 we, we share that, that whole genetic code. And so it, it only stands to reason that if God is our Father and we are his children, then all of the other believers are our brothers and sisters. And Jesus said that whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that person is my brother and my sister and my mother, family, together. And so as we gather together in this place, not only today, but in every day and every year that Ebenezer has been in existence for 90 years, in the name of Jesus Christ, it has been a family thing. Which is something I really appreciate because it reveals the sort of living relationship God has in mind for each one of us to share. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the study that was done by Paul Menear entitled Images of the Church in the New Testament, where he listed all of the metaphors used in the New Testament to describe the church. And there were 96 of them that he has in his books and all. And what impressed me is that in looking at that list is how organic each of those terms are. We have the bride of Christ, we have the people of God, we have the flock, we have the body of Christ, we have the household of God, we have the family. Each one of those depicts a living entity something that that possesses a whole life cycle that brims with energy and growth and maturity. Oh, there may be some terms among those metaphors that may seem lifeless at first, like the image in 1 Peter of the church as a building, but even then, it is a building made up of living stones. So there is life within all of these pictures. In essence, what God has made of us is a new creation, and that's another image of the church that we find. And what's in us simply cannot sit still because it's bursting with life. And quite unlike the definition that many have of church, nowhere on this list can I find anything that is inert or inorganic. You won't find any metaphors in the New Testament using words like nonprofit agency or corporate business or kingdom franchise. 
Oh, there are plenty of organizational structures that we find being taught and woven into the dynamic of group life and church fellowship, but at the core, God sees his church as a being that is possessed of life, and when God looks at us, he sees his family, which is something that we need to see, and in seeing it, hold dear. In fact, that's the reality that every church needs to embrace. Several years ago at the BC Association meetings in Kelowna at Trinity, there was a church growth consultant that uh, Tim Schroeder had in, uh, invited, Reggie McNeil, and he said something that really, really caught my attention and, quite frankly, among the pastors who were at that meeting, created quite a stir. He was asked by someone in the group uh, about what he thought of the future of small churches in light of the age of the megachurch. And he said that in his estimation, the jury was still out as to whether or not big churches would survive into the future. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that really hit me as odd because it seems at times that only the big churches have the the ability to to, to look into the future and see themselves uh, because they appear to be the very image of health and in the best position to survive because of their strength and of their success. So what do you mean that their future was questionable? But then he went on to add to say this. When the, while the jury is still out as to whether or not the big church will survive into the future, there is one thing that is absolutely certain. The big church will survive only if it is able to do small better than small. What a wonderful turn of phrase. Doing small better than small. You can spend a lot of time and effort trying to fill that phrase with meaning. But if anything, it means, I believe, that it has to do with relationships. When, 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 when I pressed Reggie to explain what it meant to be small, he said, well, keep in mind that we are God's household and there has to be a family feel if we are to belong to one another as much as we are to belong to God. Doing small better than small which raised another maxim that has proven true over the years, and I'm sure you've found it to be true in your own life, that people come to church for a thousand different reasons, but they stay really for one, and that is because a relationship has been established. A relationship with God as Father, but also a relationship where fellowship has, in fact, become family and has that feel. I love the way Jack Van Ens wrote in, in, in the Leadership Journal. He said, people join churches because they want warmth just as much as they want light. <laughs> he goes on to write, he says, we as pastors like to think that it's our stunning proclamation of truth that keeps people in the pews. Uh, sermons may get them into the church for the first time, but what keeps them coming are friendships that foster inward awareness and support. Doing small better than small. Look around at yourselves, Ebenezer, and you will see that you have all the ingredients that are necessary to be the family of God. But it's a vision that every single one must hold dear, especially as you begin to lay the foundation for a fresh season with a new pastor. 
My hope is that you will embrace this new season with the same spirit as that is found in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, where the people had a mind to work. And my prayer is that God will bless each and every effort that you have with his measure of success. But even more than that, my concern is that your efforts will have a focus as well as a feel. The fact is, many churches work so hard for each ministry to keep focused, to make disciples, whether they be children or students or adults, or even seasoned citizens, making, a, making disciples, winning and building and equipping. It's a common mission that we all share, but for it all to be worthwhile, there needs to also be an essence within that mission, and that is to give it a feel, and that is family. Some years ago, I had a chance to talk with the pastor of the largest church in the North American Baptist Conference. Uh, it's in Racine, Wisconsin, and it's Grace Baptist Church, and Jerry Worsham is the pastor. Oddly enough, he was the church planter who started the church and has been there for now decades. The church began with, with, with less than 20 people and then grew to 200 and now numbers in the thousands. And I asked him if, if they were able... Uh, with all that growth, to do small better than small, thinking of what I had heard from Reggie McNeil, and how they were able to do it. And he told me that they did it by keeping their ministry focused on people. They, too, have, uh, uh, have it as their mission to make disciples, but they make sure to define exactly what that means. For them, it It has become a vision statement where their ministry is intended to call people to the highest commitment of Jesus' lordship in their lives. That's a phrase that you can find everywhere within their church. So that no matter what a person is doing, and no matter where a person begins, they will be able to make the next step forward in their spiritual growth. No matter what the person is doing, teaching Sunday school, helping park cars, they, they aren't just teaching or parking cars. They are inspiring and cultivating people as brothers and sisters to achieve the highest commitment of Jesus' lordship in their lives. They're in it as family. And that's what happens in family. There's an understanding that, that each member is unique and at their own stage of growth, but needing to be nurtured along to take the next steps by someone who is related to them like a brother or a sister, someone who cares, someone who's committed enough and patient enough to stay with them through the process. And what a joy it is to see that happen. At Ebenezer, you've had a chance to, 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 to experience Alpha, and you've done that around tables with people. Uh, to give you an idea of the joy that, that I have when I see that happening, I remember a time when I was uh, the pastor at Bethany. We, too, had an Alpha ministry. And, and in a morning service, Pastor Frank, who was in charge of the program, uh, read a testimony of one seeker who had attended Alpha. And someone came up to me after the service, someone in the congregation, and, and they wondered if, if it was really appropriate to share tes- such a testimony, if it was breaking confidence in some way, shape, or form. Uh, was it really appropriate? If, if, would it scare other seekers to know that their stories would be told out loud? <laughs> I looked at them and I said, uh, well, it, it was really nice because standing right next to me at the time was another seeker who had been coming to Alpha. And so I, I just turned to that person and I said, did the testimony make you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> was it inappropriate for you? Did it scare you to think that a story would be told? And that seeker was standing there and he said, not at all. I mean, everyone around my table on Tuesday nights knows who I am and I know that they love me.
So what's to be uncomfortable about? I am a seeker, and I've got questions. I am just glad to be somewhere where I can ask the questions with people who actually care. It's like being in a family. (laughs) The family does small the best of all. And as the circle of love is, it creates this bond, you can actually feel the vibe of that bond. I love the, the motto that, that Olive Garden has paid thousands of dollars for from an advertising company. You can actually feel the vibe through it. It catches the spirit. And the motto is, when you're here, you're family. <laughs> when you're here, you're family. Now, the Olive Garden is going to pay you, is going to charge you for that. Uh, but I love that for the church when you're here. Your family. How is that for a vision statement? And it is perfect for the family of God. Consequently, we read here, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and now members of God's household. So as I come to the end of this study of just one verse, (laughs) let me share two final words, and they are words of caution, warning, principle, whatever you want to call it. And the first is that this vision of family, uh, the vision of the family of God is lived out by human beings and thus defies perfection. Let's be real about it. I, I, I know the feeling of family may sound at the first to be something warm and fuzzy, but it doesn't really take long to tarnish that image and leave you disappointed and jaded. All you have to do is just bump up against someone in the family who is irritating, demanding, eccentric, or harsh, and boom, that dream is shattered. In his wonderful book, Life Together, a book that laid out the rules and expectations for a fellowship of the Christian community that Dietrich Bonhoeffer gathered together uh, during World War II and was able to weather severe oppression during that, that, that period. Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He said these as words of warning. Listen very carefully what he says. He said, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world in our fellowship. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences of, and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of emotions, but the God of truth. And only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp by faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better it is for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists on keeping its illusions when they should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later it will collapse. He who loves, and I love this phrase, he who loves his dream of a community more than the actual community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. 
We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brothers and sisters who live by his call. We, we, we thank God by his forgiveness and his promise. And we do not complain about what God has not given us, but rather we thank God for what he does give us daily. Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin and need, but all under the blessing of his grace. And when the morning mist of dreams vanish, he writes, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. We are family. So once again, let me give you a fair warning. The vision of the family of God is lived by humans and thus defies perfection. So... It does mean that we start looking at each other with patience and, and with love and with care and with reality, but we do it with thanksgiving. And one more word. The, the vision of the family of God requires us to approach it with a personal embrace. We have to make it our own. To be a, a family, each member has to make it their business to look at each other with love and care and reality in order to make it thanksgiving. Let me close with a story that was told by Pastor Paul Green of San Pedro, California, of a woman in his congregation, true story that actually happened. When she turned 21, Tammy Harris uh, began searching for her biological mother. After a year, she had not succeeded. Uh, What she did not know was that her birth mother, Joyce Schultz, had also been trying to locate her for 20 years as well. According to the story, there was one more thing that Tammy didn't know. Her mother was actually one of her co-workers at the convenience store where she worked. One day, Joyce overheard Tammy talking with another co-worker about trying to find her birth mother. She had been adopted. She told the story. And soon she said, I've been looking for my daughter. And they began to compare notes And they compared birth certificates. When Tammy realized that the co-worker she had known was in fact her mother, she fell into her arms and she writes, we held on to each other for the longest time and it was the very best day of our lives to finally be together. They were family and they didn't even know it. How long had they been working together day after day, passing time just doing their job, mother and daughter completely unaware of each other? Now, can you imagine the difference that was made by the best day of their lives from that day forward after they became family? (laughs) Look, each, each week we rub shoulders with people that we may barely notice, And it's our choice to live that way, and it may be our choice to worship that way, but it doesn't have to be that way or stay that way. Because when people share a birth in Jesus Christ, they become our dearest relatives, mother, father, sister, brother. How precious is the family of God. Ebenezer, because of Jesus Christ, And on the authority of God's word, consequently, you are no longer and strangers and aliens to one another, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and have been and always will be members of God's household. We are family. Let us pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see each other and who we are right here as you see us. Lord, you see us as your children, and for that we give you thanks. And, and, and Lord, for that birth that we have in Jesus Christ and for that new creature that we are in, in, within, Lord, we are so thankful. And Lord, even more than that, you have not left us to be alone in our salvation, but you have gathered us together with your family. Help us to see each other in, those light, in that light and help us to, to be able to, to care for one another in that way. And Lord, help us to be able to embrace each other so that, Lord, now as Heavenly Father, you might build your family as you have desired from the beginning of time. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.